Common Threads, produced by Artifacts, the podcast that brings tailors together through open and authentic conversation. We post new episodes periodically, talking with tailors, merchants, and other businesses that make up the sartorial world. Make sure to visit our website at discoverartifacts.com and to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Enjoy the show. Dubbed the Millennial Bespoke Tailor by no less than Women's Wear Daily, Paolo Martirano, while still young, boasts a singularly auspicious body of experience. As the grandson of both a master tailor and a seamstress, Paolo's inclination to the bespoke world was something of a double legacy birthright. Prior to attending the Fashion Institute of Technology, where he graduated with a degree in textile science, he began his career while still a teenager by garnering an internship with Alan Flusser. He followed that with a seven-year stint in the custom clothing department at the legendary Madison Avenue flagship of Paul Stewart, where he helped to quadruple their made-to-measure and bespoke operations, only leaving to assume the position of manager of bespoke and made-to-measure in North America at Dunhill. In 2017, at the urging of several customers, he took, by his own admission, the immense step of starting his own label, Paolo Martirano Bespoke. Paolo, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to come talk with me. It's my pleasure. Great. Well, I just, before we get into anything more serious and kind of more specific, I kind of wanted to go in of an overview of, of your career, you know, where, where you've been and, and, and how you've gotten to where you are right now. Sure. So firstly, having a custom tailoring business is the least original idea anyone has ever had in my family in hundreds of years, probably. Uh, As I asked my father last night, I said, could you think of someone that wasn't a tailor other than you and your brother? And he's like, well, I I don't know. I can't think of anybody. (laughs) I said, well, there you go. It's it's not very original. and it's on both sides of my family. So my father's family was from southern Italy, a very, very small town. Uh, I think they literally have a few hundred people. Uh, I, don't, I don't even want to say the name of the town because I'm afraid I might give the You're wrong one. <laughs> yeah, I, it's not on the top of my list of places to visit. <laughs> There's a lot it's, of places like that in, in southern Italy. Yeah, yeah, it, it might be uh, too authentic of an experience, some might say. Um, but my grandfather moved from Italy to Argentina after World War II. My grandmother was born there, um, and she was a tailoress, uh, mostly did trousers. And um, they had a tailor shop in a very small town in rural Argentina about couple hours away from Mar del Plata, which is a couple hours from Buenos Aires. So we're talking about a pretty off-the-beaten-path town. Although, if you know Fangio, the race car driver, the famous Formula One driver, um, he was from the town of Balcarce, which is where my dad was born. So if you're a Formula One fan, you'll know my father's hometown very well. Um, in fact, we watched a movie about Fangio, and we actually saw some of my family members in the movie, which tells you how small the town is. And for all we know, my grandfather probably made suits for Fangio. Some of the suits that Fangio wore looked like my grandfather's. So fairly Roman look, a little bit more stiff, but that was also the time period. People were not really wearing soft tailoring yet. So that was your grandfather moved to, from Italy to Argentina? Yep. And okay. then to New York, which was in the early 70s, late 60s, they moved to New York. My, my grandfather and grandmother, my father was still in Argentina with his brother growing up. And they came here for a better life. Moved to Long Island, where they had family from Italy that had moved from Italy to Long Island. Uh, and some people from Argentina. And they worked as tailors here. My, They were pretty much always on Long Island and Queens and Nassau County and Queens. They never worked in Manhattan from what I understand. Uh, my grandmother, I believe she was a trouser maker at Hurtling and 3G, which, you know, pretty well-known names, yeah. Hurtling and uh, 3G is now Martin Greenfield. Um, I remember stories that she was doing trousers for some Calvin Klein line and there was briefly the Savile Row line that Calvin Klein did at Hurtling. So that was probably it. There were some samples that were on eBay a few years ago of double-breasted officer pink cavalry twill suits. 
that were Calvin Klein made in Brooklyn. So I believe that is what she was talking about <laughs> years wow. ago. Uh, and my grandfather retired very early, basically as soon as he turned 65, didn't want to work anymore. Um, which, you know, some he was people just counting was, the days to retirement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is something he grew up in. So you know, it wasn't exciting for him as it is for me and some other people, you know, yeah. I mean, we've, we've rediscovered this business. Like a lot of people have rediscovered artisan trades. That's such an interesting point. I think that's so true. A lot of like I've they took it on, for granted. They took it for granted. Well, also, and they got into it to feed themselves and their families, right? Yeah. I mean, there was no other kind of work. I mean, anyone in my dad's family was a a tailor. If they weren't a tailor, they were a carpenter or they were a barber or they were a shoemaker. Those were the only businesses that they were in. And before then, uh, they were farmers and they were wearing rags. <laughs> they weren't wearing suits yet. In fact, you know, my father t will tell a story that's very common. Every tailor has told the story about when they were a teenager and their father was a tailor, their mother was a tailor, and they made them a jacket or something that was popular and they didn't want to wear it because it wasn't from the store or the brand that was popular at the time. So my father talks about going to public school when he eventually came to New York as a teenager, the peacoats were popular and he wanted a, like a navy blue peacoat. So his parents made him a peacoat and like some expensive fabric from Argentina, like Guanaco or Vicuña or Cashmere. And he was like, no, I, I want the one from Sears, like everyone else has, you know, it's a typical story. It's not so uncommon. Um, I think my mother has similar stories from her mother. Her mother was a, a furrier, a master tailor, a dressmaker. She did everything. She made a lot of my grandfather's suits. Her husband was in the airline industry, so and he passed away fairly young in the early 1970s. So he was really in that catch me if you can era of the airline industry, where it was really glamorous. So he was always dressed up, not in a style that I particular can particularly can relate to. It was very Mad Men esque, you know, narrow lapels, monotone, you know, kind different of a sack suit. Yeah, it was. He he wore a lot of Hickey Freeman in Oxford. He would buy it at Barney's or you know the other department stores. That was his style. Um, he hung out with a lot of federal government people that he knew from the airline industry. So the style was very Washingtonian looking. Um, but my grandmother made. She was from the Netherlands, and my grandfather as well. My mother was born in Amsterdam too. Uh, so very different cultures, but involved in the same kind of businesses. So my grandmother's business was a lot more you know, luxurious with the furs and the dressmaking, um, you know, mainly worked for people she knew, but she had incredible talents and I have many things that she made, whether it's home furnishings, things. And, um, my mother has many fur coats that her mother made and cashmere overcoats. She's got a top coat with a fur collar that is really gorgeous um, that she you know is proud to wear. Um, so yeah, I was surrounded by these kind of things when I grew up, and there was a you know just seeing a lot of that before I went to elementary school. Even I just remember seeing all these kind of things, and I, I guess there was always that interest in the back of my mind, and there was always the fact that I was dressed up a little bit more than other kids, especially kids of the 90s. <laughs> the bar is pretty low for kids of the 90s. You weren't wearing low-cut uh, jeans? and uh... No, no. Uh, I mean, I, I wore the same things everyone else wore. I was a you know, normal kid. But there was a point where I knew, even from being a little kid, I hated being underdressed. And I'm not talking about like cosplay, dressing like a dandy kind of stuff. I just like I didn't like wearing shorts, you know, I'd rather wear jeans or something like that, corduroys. Um, it was like I was worried about being too chilly <laughs> in a restaurant or or looking at a place or something like that. And I, I was thinking like that since like eight years old. And where did you grow up? I grew up in, in the South Shore of Long Island. So in a in a in a place that's, you know, become more diverse, but 
you have a mixture of white collar and blue collar and um, a lot of people are immigrants. So you were exposed to a lot of different things, which was great. I didn't grow up around people that were all the same. Um, you know, a, a lot of people were Italian American like myself or Jewish and European. So, you know, many people with the same kind of backgrounds like that. Um, so in high school, that feeling of, uh, wanting to be just slightly more dressed up really came into play as it does with every teenager. They become hyper-focused on the way they look. It's like the only thing they're focused on, you know, now, was, was it like, a? did you think of it as dressing up when you were? No. And I, I, you know, I did, I wasn't like wearing tailored clothing to school, but I, I became more interested in, you could say fashion, you know, not specifically tailoring. So what happened is I realized that with menswear, everything is related to the suit. You know, the 1930s created modern day menswear. And I started looking at different magazines. And of course, if you're looking at magazines, the bulk of the ads and editorials are still focused around tailored clothing, despite all we've been through. Everything is revolving around the suit still. So I was really kind of, my eyes were being trained and I was figuring out what I was looking at. And then I started reading magazines like GQ and Esquire, which, you know, now I don't really look at those kind of magazines, but um, it was the perfect time to look at that because there was, you know, kind of Alan Fluster's renaissance of the 2010s where he like popped back into the spotlight and he did a video that I think a lot of us remember in GQ.com that was, um, yeah, he had some very specific views about people like Tom Brown that he was not afraid to say and some other trends. So this two, three minute video, I'm watching it. I'm like, Hey, you can be into clothes and not be into fashion and fads and trends you could you know you could just be elegant and then it made me pay more attention to people like ralph lauren and things like brooks brothers and jay press and i thought well if i'm gonna i was working since i was 15 or 16 i got my license as soon as i could and i was working jobs and making money and of course like every teenager you want to buy something as soon as you get the money and uh, I started going to like outlets and uh, one of my, it's sad to see that it's gone finally, is Filene's Basement. I remember fondly and some people may remember you could go to Filene's and you could buy a Keton suit for $200 that had, you know, a rip through it or they, you know, screwed up the alterations or something like that. So I bought a few of these garments from Brioni, Keton, Armani. Armani was one that I was really into. You know, that and I think everyone has a period where they look at Armani and they think, well, that that's just so cool. Because it, it was a it's a great, easy way to get into tailored clothing. Because he softened tailored clothing. He made it so approachable and sexy. So that was my first four into men's where I was being inspired by something like Armani. So of course now I look at that. You were influenced by the Ivy look, though, right? I mean, so it sounds like you went through yeah, Brothers. Big, that. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it was a little mixed up, I know, but I liked the fact that that Ivy style never changed. Oh, and okay, what I, I what I, what I, when my eyes were getting trained, I realized that stuff like Armani is fashion, and it changes all the time. Later on, I would understand the quality differences. Uh, and that that's also a you know considerable part of the equation. But with with the way I wanted to buy clothes, I, I realized if I'm going to be spending my money, I, I want to buy something I can have for a long time. And I said, well, Ralph Lauren, you know, ding, there it is. <laughs> that never changes. So you know, maybe I should pay more attention to style like that. So that's when, you know, Alan Flusser and the, you know, dressing the man, styling the man, those things came into play. And I started really reading about that. And I read dressing the man cover to cover. And uh, which, you know, I, I was later told when I worked there that not many people have done that. <laughs> um, but when I started driving and, you know, 
being out all the time, I realized that there was a someone who said they were a custom tailor that was just a few doors down from my high school. So on my lunch hour, I drove over there and went in with you know something to alter. You know, I didn't want to come in there empty-handed. I had one enough. of those ketone suits that you had from. Yeah, exactly. It was yep. It was one of those, and uh, I saw that he was making trousers, and I had you know seen enough pictures and read enough as a teenager at sixteen to know this guy's making things and not altering them. You know, I, I had seen enough references to that, and I also grew up seeing that, so I could tell it was not just alterations. So I had a conversation with him. You know, what are you crazy? Why would you be interested in this? You know, most of what I do is altering, you know, the the trousers for you know the housewives over here and the you know guys buying their suits at the mall and you know why would you want to be interested in seeing me make trousers? And he had a wall of old Laura Piana fabric, and there was one I remember. It was a brown and cream houndstooth cashmere. And I wanted to buy it off of him, even though I had nowhere to get clothes made. I was just like, I have to have that fabric. And um, he was like, yeah, I'm happy to talk to me. So I came back a few more times. He said, okay, listen, I have no interest in training you, but I have some things from when I was a kid in Rome, when I went to Brioni's Academy of Tailoring that I want to show you. I'll bring it in tomorrow. Come by and I'll show you. So I came back and he showed me his you know, school book, for lack of a better word, of patterns he was, you know, working on as a as a, a trainee at Brioni, and he had done some work for, um, you know, some tailor for the Vatican, and he showed me different clothes he made for the Pope, um, you know, obviously not by himself, but things he had helped with, and he had all these sketches and patterns and illustrations and he had one book that was just dedicated to all the pope's clothes and it was patterns i mean they actually showed you how to make the capes and all the you know it was it was fascinating and um i think right before he closed his business a few years later when i was in college i went back and i said could i buy that from you because since you you said your kids were not interested in it you know like i got to preserve this history this is like people would kill to have something like this and he was like go become a lawyer or a doctor like my two daughters like why would you want to do this and, you know, but that's was, so the old mentality for of sure course. i mean i've worked with tailors like that where they worked in the old shops in rome or, or naples or wherever it may be and then they became tailors themselves maybe opened up their own place or uh, went into alterations and then they told their kids, you know what, go to college, you know, get educated so that you don't have to work like I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every parent wants a better life for their children. And, you know, the celebrity tailor is a fairly new concept. And that's a, that's a concept of the last few decades and really considerably since the Internet. You know, there, there were a few of those celebrity tailors really in the 70s is when that concept started. There was actually a tailor down the street from this other tailor. The first tailor was Fortunato. That was the name of his little shop. So down the street was another tailor shop whose name I don't remember. It was not in there a lot. And I look in. I, I was picking up dinner or something. I have this memory that it was in the evening. And uh, I see on a mannequin a basted garment with the hand padded lapels and the collar. And I was like, uh, wait a second, that's out of place. <laughs> What's that doing here on Long Island? Like, I got to, I got to see what this is about. So I went in there and I said, Oh, do, do you make suits? Um, you know, what, what exactly is this? And he, he was, I think the owner may have been really retired and, and maybe, you know, not seeing customers anymore, but he was doing this to kind of keep himself uh, awake <laughs> and, you know, active, yeah, uh, active. And I think it was, you know, maybe his daughter or his wife or someone else that was really running an alterations business. But I said, I, I'd love to see you work on this garment. Uh, so this is not something that just appeared out of thin air. This is, you made this. And he, he really didn't have a lot of interest, just like the other guy. 
and uh, but it was something impressive to see. And I, I witnessed, you know, the the end of these tailors that came here at the same time as my grandparents working. And it was just sad to see that they had no business, they had no customers, they had no bespoke customers. And, you know, you have uh, many businesses around the country that just fell off the face of the earth when these people passed away or retired. So, uh, yeah, if I could turn back the clock, I'd probably be like, no, I'll pay you to teach me. And we're going to save the shop. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know. What, why do you think that is? Why, why have... Uh all these shops closed. And I mean, that's not even just a thing from 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. I think even today uh, in the United States or uh, definitely in Italy and, and in Europe, shops are closing. Um, yeah. There are some really successful places, but a lot of the guys, I mean, a lot of the guys who even at some point, you know, were dressing royalty or uh, singers or, or uh, actors. I mean, they're, they're dying out. And I'm just curious, why Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, one thing for sure is location matters. Um, you know, when you think of the tailors that are still in existence, where are they located? They're located in, for the most part, you know, metropolitan shopping areas that they get a lot of traffic and high-end clientele. At one time, as we know, there was nothing but bespoke tailoring before there was ready-to-wear. So... These shops existed all over the planet. And, you know, the small towns, whether they're in New York or Illinois or Italy, small towns aren't what they used to be because people went into the city. And these tailors in the suburbs, you know, what business did they really have? There are a handful, as you are probably aware of, you know, bespoke tailors in these wealthy suburbs in the U.S. that still exist. There's very few of them. I remember 10 years ago, there were people in Greenwich, Connecticut, suburban Pennsylvania. Yeah, there was the gentleman who they made that movie about. I think it was Centifanti. Yeah, I was going to say Joe Genuardi worked with Centifani, which is in Pen- uh, some suburb in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you had lots of people like him that existed in you know, Coral Gables, Fort Lauderdale, Palm Beach, suburban Dallas, suburban, you know, Los Angeles, etc. And, you know, there are some of these people that we don't know of, you know, you and me, and they have quiet businesses and they're very happy. <laughs> they don't need to advertise. Well, but- a lot of it is because they work for other guys, right? It's not necessarily that they have their own brand or, or business. It's kind of like they work for somebody or they just do, you know, they have however many clients and they just, they just service those clients. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was a there was a few clients I got because someone in Connecticut closed, and the name I can't remember, but they were a real bench tailor. I believe they were Italian, and uh, when they closed, their customers scattered across the tri-state area. You mentioned the term benchmade. Yes, I'm curious to know more about that. I don't know if that's a just in the United States type of thing, <laughs> or maybe Frank Shattuck has taken over the you know <laughs> the branding for tailors, and that's the only that's the only terminology that's allowed in the U.S. Is that a thing just in the U.S. Or I know you worked for Dunhill. I don't know if they mentioned like did they use that term? They, as no, well there? they would they would not use it. So when I started in the business, I got a lot of uh, senior people saying, okay, here's how the industry works. <laughs> and here, here's what to say, what not to say, what's best, what's not good, what's a red flag. Um, what I was always taught was in New York, because we have such a high concentration of quality made to measure and high end made to measure clothes, because we have, New York has a number of very good factories. Where else in the United States are you going to find you know, Greenfield, Adrian Jewels. We don't have Ciccarelli anymore. Um, Oxford. Yeah, Oxford and Chicago. Uh, but just in the New York area and then uh, Gilberto and then smaller shops as well. Um, it's a very unique thing that New York still has this. So the differentiator was Benchmade is someone who has everything there for you to see. So you go into... Nino Corvato, and you see Nino Corvato cutting 
your suit and people working on it right there. Those were the bench tailors. Um, and, you know, there was, the, there was that short list of, of who those bench tailors were. Okay. So they have to have everything – you said everything that – for you to see. So when you exactly. go there, you're able to see all the raw materials – at yeah. the beginning and then also at the very end you'll see everything put yeah, together. Yeah, it was like they literally have their bench there in their store. Okay. You know. So that was the <clears throat> benchmark cha-ching of uh uh like the Savile Row equivalent to the term of bespoke. You know, you can't say bespoke on Sal- Savile Row bespoke unless it's made there and x percentage is made within a radius of Savile Row. Bench made is like the unofficial New York term. I think, <laughs> and it's it is funny when you see people catch on to that on, you know, uh, permanent style. I've seen people ask like, "So what's bench made exactly? What's this term?" <laughs> or you'll see like, "Oh, this is real bench made" or something like that. Pure, I always well, see Frank, that. pure Frank's bench term made. is pure bench. Yes. Pure, bench, I li- pure bench. I like that. I, <laughs> I give him credit for that. Pure Nothing bench. but the bench. <laughs> yeah, Fr- Frank is actually occasionally he calls me and uh, he's actually sent me a few coat makers. Believe it or not, he he um, he knows some people who've worked for me and. Uh, He's actually called and said, you, you know, talk to this guy. He was a coat maker with so-and-so and call this guy. He was a coat maker with so-and-so. And this person was a trouser maker. And, um, and well, yeah, Frank so, worked um, with Raphael, right? Frank worked with Raphael. I, I, and I have two other people who worked for Raphael. Okay. So um, Raphael was a, uh, a fantastic tailor. Uh, I liked the silhouette a lot. It was... Um, it was it was soft, but it wasn't overly soft, so it had an appeal to that American guy who likes soft tailoring. Um, you know, the name of his business was Savile Row Bespoke. I don't know if you I know didn't that. know that. That's incredible. <laughs> but that was the name of the company, <laughs> Savile Row Bespoke. And you know, occasionally you'll see a vintage piece come up, and it's just a Savile Row Bespoke, and people are like. Okay, here's a Savile Row bespoke jacket. No, have no idea who it was made for for sale, and that's that's Raphael, who was Argentinian, by the way. There was a lot of Argentinian tailors in New York. Who were some of the other old guard that kind of maybe through Frank he's exposed you to them, or you know through other connections that you've? I mean, obviously, like we were talking about, there's Martin Greenfield, which is kind of old guard, but a different. Type yeah, of it's old a factory. Guard, right? Yeah, it's a yeah. factory, and you know. Through obviously, you know, Alan Flusser and Paul Stewart, there was a connection to them, and you know, a um, an understanding of how that kind of business works, which I knew with my business, I didn't want to have that kind of work. I think for me, it just wasn't what I was looking for. Benchmade work, you mean? What do you mean? No, the fact, yeah, you know, factory. Okay. Factory made customs wasn't what I was looking for 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 my kind of business model, but. Yeah, I mean, those kind of shops uh, had or have people who came out of bespoke tailor shops. So they, they have a level of expertise that you're not going to find at a regular factory, um, which could be very good for some of their accounts and their private customers. When I was starting out in the business, when I got my first job with Alan Flusser when I was 18, um, there was a lot of tailors that came through there just to kind of keep in touch. I mean, there was more of a community then of bench tailors than there is today. There's certainly a lot more than that existed, but people talk about my building, 130 West 57th Street being the commune of tailors. There were other buildings way before that where you had three or four or five custom tailor shops, all competitors with each other on the same floor, same hallway. Was your building... The building that Fioravanti was in as well? No, that, that's it? diagonally across from me. They, they oh, may okay. have just knocked that building down to build another one of these skyscrapers. Uh, but no, that, that's just a few doors down from me, Fioravanti's building. Okay, but all kind of in a similar, in, in a, a small radius. Yeah, I mean, 57th Street was the Savile Row of, of the United States, really, and, and Madison Avenue as well. Yeah. New York had a lot of tailors, a lot of tailors. You know, some of them who've retired, I've I've kept in touch with. They've helped me out when I started my business. Um, there are names that I hear from people that come to see me, especially older clients, people in their 80s, 
Then they mentioned a tailor. Yeah, they were at, you know, 162nd Street, something, floor 13,000. I never heard of that guy. You go on Google and, oh, wow, look at that. Another tailor. Yeah, New York had more tailors than London probably had. I mean, and that all disappeared within the last 30 years. I mean, there's a reason why this is where most tailors from Europe and the UK do, you know, half or three quarters of their business. There's a, there's a big market here. And I don't think a lot of people necessarily know that or feel that. Like you see a lot in the European scene, it's almost like they're marketing to each other a lot or you'll see mm-hmm. um, <laughs> tailors go, you know, they'll go to Amsterdam or, or wherever, London or Paris. Yeah. And, but yeah. then when you get to more Savile Row, which I feel like is a little bit more, um, they're a little bit more corporatized, if that's if I can say that. You know, there's a little bit more uh, business backing them. Then mm-hmm. all of them well, go. Well, look who owns most of the firms. Yeah, well, exactly. Businesses. And so, yeah. but all of them, they're coming to the U.S. because they think they have, you know, they have the money. They realize, look, there's opportunity to make a lot more money in the U.S. at traveling there than just staying here. Yeah. Well, Ralph Lawrence said it the best. Uh, American men still kind of look up to. Englishmen, they're still kind of intimidated and still kind of want to be like them. Uh, I remember Ralph saying that in an interview, and it's yeah, it's true. I mean, I meet plenty of people on the road and in New York who say, "I love having suits made by you or so and so." I've always wanted to have a Savile Row suit, or I've always wanted to have a suit made in Naples or something like that, and. You press them further. Well, is there something that, you know, I did wrong or is there something that your former tailor did wrong? Or No, I just want the experience. Okay. Well, you know, that's part of the luxury experience is experience. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the whole song and dance in the show. Uh, I remember making a guy shirts at Paul Stewart. So this is why I didn't take it so personally. It wasn't my name on the label. And the shirts fit the band very well. And he says, Ah, I'm going to go to Charvet next. And I said, why did you waste your time coming here if you're going to go to Charvet? I said, let me tell you something. These shirts fit you beautifully. You can go to Charvet, and I have nothing bad to say about Charvet at all. I, you know, I'd love to have a store in Plaza Vendome. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, you're going to have to go back and forth, and you're not going to get this level of service when you live in Manhattan if you have to go all the way over there and hope that they're able to take care of your fittings very quickly and efficiently. Well, yeah. So on one hand, you have the experience. And on the other hand, you have like the more practicality of being in the U.S. Someone just texted me as we're talking who has clothes made at, I think, every tailor that exists in Europe and the U.K., major clothes horse. And he saw me during a trunk show this year. And it was like, wow, I can get Savile Row quality here, made in the United States. And I can see you like every other week for a fitting. I don't have to worry about waiting six months or in this case, two years. He's like, this is so convenient. And it's like, well, this is not new. I mean, <laughs> I'm one of the few people that's around, but you know, you could have had this experience a long time ago. Um, obviously, we realized how smaller or how big the world is within the past year and a half for obvious reasons. And um, there there are a number of people that realize that obviously it's a little bit difficult to be buying clothes halfway around the world, especially at the level some people want to buy them. And we've had people contact us early on in the pandemic and say, you know, with the way that I buy my clothes, Savile Row can't service me in the way I need to be ser- serviced. I, I want to buy new clothes every month, every two months. And, you know, they're not able to do anything. So I need to find another way. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by subscribing now. If you have any thoughts or comments, please feel free to share them with us on Instagram, Facebook, or directly on our website at discoverartifacts.com. Now, back to the show. So we were talking about the experience, like, you know, oh, I want a, a guy who's interested in a Neapolitan suit says, I want the experience of going to Naples and getting that suit. Do you feel like there's sort of, uh, I, don't know, I don't know, any stigma or different types of comparison? Because I know when 
when I went to Italy the first time and I didn't understand anything they were saying, it was so much cooler <laughs> in one way. And then I learned the language and I realized kind of it's not nearly as cool as I thought it was. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not trying to take anything away from the Italians. Yeah. Fantastic style, fantastic tailors, depending on where yeah. you're at. But there is sort of like this romanticism. There's bespoke tailoring, which is romantic in and of itself. And then you have going to another country. It's like, oh, I'm going to go to Naples and I'm going to have this beautiful suit tailored for me as I'm, you know, drinking on this terrace overlooking uh, the the bay here. I mean, it's, it's romance. <laughs> it is romance. But do you see like what, how are your clients? It sounds like you have clients maybe who are on both sides of that where they're like, wow, I have this service in the U.S., but then I also want to go over yeah. and get the experience. Yeah. You, you have people that just want to buy something that they feel looks good on them. And they came to me because they saw something they liked or they read something that they liked about me. Uh, or about the people who work for me and that really spoke to them. Uh, you have people who are tired of that kind of experience because, well, maybe they didn't have a good experience and they were like, I'm not going to go through this if I'm not going to get what I want, you know, whether it's fit or level of service, et cetera. Um, so they have a bad experience or, they, or they're just tired of long distance. And then you have the people who, you know, some good friends of mine who are clients slash friends they go all over the place and I know they do and they're good friends and patrons of them and they've become their friends and family of these different artisans. And that, you know what? I'd probably be like that if I was a hedge fund manager. I, I would probably be that kind of customer. You know, I'd want to have a good relationship with the person working with me and have these friendships in different places to appreciate different things. Um, I have friends that wear Anderson and Shepard one day and Michael Brown the next day. A person like that is <laughs> a very unique person, but um, you have a handful of those people who are just aficionados. But some instances that stick out to mind, um, some examples that stick out to mind of people I know in the industry who I won't name, who, let's put it this way, they have a very nice, thick accent. And because of that accent, people have just assumed they were tailors. And they just kind of went along with it because it was this romantic act. And it was a great sales pitch. And it's helped their businesses tremendously because they had an accent. <laughs> I wish I had an accent. I'm stuck with a New York accent. I got to believe part of that is – a New York accent's not a bad one, by the way. <laughs> but a part of that I got to believe is that when you're working with somebody you know, from a different country, you're willing to let them do things maybe that you wouldn't if they weren't from that country because you have it's almost like you have to give True. a little bit of trust mm -hmm. because you're not necessarily uh understanding each other on the same level and so you're kind of saying if they might say oh well this fabric's gonna be perfect for you it's only 300 dollars more a yard than this one <laughs> and you're saying yeah. oh really maybe they're right because you're kind of your guards down almost yeah i mean there there's i mean uh, a little bit of this has gone away and I think it depends on the level of quality you're going to deliver to the person. But yeah, there, there will be people who will probably go along with that much more easily abroad than they will in their own backyard. You know, maybe if we're talking about haggling or – Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not talking necessarily about price but in style yeah. and, you know um, – but for the most part, customers are pretty open-minded when they come to me. I don't push people into things. I, I sell clothes, and it's interesting because when you talk to Alex Bello, he spoke about it. The way that I sell clothes is based on the individual. It's not based so much about me um, and what I would like to wear. You know, I have guys who buy black suits and black pants and things like that that I would never in a million years wear and never recommend. And they're so happy when they get their black pants. And one gentleman who's been very loyal to me, he, he just bought many beautiful, beautiful, tasteful things that I've pitched to him. And he you know, ordered a pair of black trousers one time. I think they were Harrison's Frontier, great fabric. And he said, oh, they're just so versatile. I love them. I said, sure, absolutely. <laughs> Maybe you don't post a photo of them on Instagram, but <laughs> you let them have them, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I was quoted somewhere recently. I said, you know, the the charcoal gray center vent suit customers is the one that pays the bills. And I mean, it's the same thing on Savile Row in Naples. I mean, I don't know if you saw this in your experiences abroad, but um, yeah, the the guy with the conservative taste is is the guy who's the most loyal and buys the most. Well, usually. you'll see those guys. So. I mean, especially like where I was, where you just go into a tailor shop and everything's blue. You know, you look at the floor. You can go yeah. into a tailor shop and and you can understand what they're working on by what scraps are on the floor. So you look on the floor <laughs> and it's just filled with different all these different hues of blue on the floor. So. Exactly. Or gray. Yeah. 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 yeah that comment's been made to me a few times like by my more stylish customers. They go, doesn't anyone have any like, you know, are they daring at all to wear something different? Like, what's what's with all the navy and gray? I have to I have to say the one if I can interject this the one great thing that came out of the situation that we've been in the past year and a half is men are more willing to wear things that they were not willing to wear in 2019. Hmm. They're willing to wear double-breasted, they're willing to wear, you know, peak lapels on a single-breasted jacket. I have a new client of mine who's a Great young guy. He's one of the pioneers in cryptocurrencies, which you know I'm not well versed in, but he is apparently very well respected in that business. And he now he went from wearing like three thousand dollars sneakers that he'd buy at auction and jeans to wearing pinstripe suits with braces. And he just ordered a couple of tweed jackets. And he's like, how can we make these look like they're not from Bergdorf or Saks? I'm like, how about we do it with like sleeve cuffs? And he's like, I don't know what that is, but I'll do it. <laughs> now, you got to I got to believe that some of that's from things sort of like in popular culture, like, you you know, the Wolf of Wall Street, which is kind of infamous. And Len Longsdale made some of that stuff for Wolf of Wall Street with mm-hmm. suspenders and pinstripes and sort of the power. So I got to imagine some of that has influenced those guys like the like your customer here in cryptocurrency. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe a little <laughs> a little bit of that Gordon Gecko thing. I mean, yeah. I someone asked me the question once like what's the most life-changing suit you ever saw? Because that was a question that had been asked to someone else who was mm-hmm. famous tailor or something and it was like was there ever one garment that changed your life? And for me, there was a memory of my summer working at Flusser where I had to put box cloth braces on all the suit trousers for a guy that was coming in for a fitting. And there was a navy blue double breasted suit and it had, you know, like an inch and a quarter wide pinstripe. And there was an identical one in medium gray. And it was like you exactly what you would imagine being you know, coming out of the tailor shop there. And they were just, just so damn elegant. I mean, it was the exact look that I, I, at that point I was looking a lot at the, you know, purple label ads and all that kind of stuff. And those bold pinstripe suits and the sharp collars and satin ties and stuff. And I, I saw these suits and I was like, that's elegance. I want to dress like that guy. And that guy's a good friend of mine to this day, <laughs> that that customer. Um, so it's funny because he doesn't remember those suits. So <laughs> They must not have been very impactful for him. <laughs> He's got a lot of clothes. He's got a lot of clothes. Um, I told him the story recently. He's like, I don't, I don't, I don't know where those suits went. <laughs> they just disappeared, huh? <laughs> I wonder what I wonder what he would have responded to that. What's the most impactful garment for you? Well, I made him a Vicuña blazer uh, in in early 2020. It was some, it, someone asked me, and you know, I haven't sold as much Vicuña as I'm sure you know Huntsman has or Caraceni has or something. But um, someone asked me, "What is it like when you sell Vicuña?" I said, "Well, it's." There are guys I have who buy Super 250s and Super 200s, and they could buy $10,000, $15,000 suits by the dozen. And there are a number of those guys that exist in the industry that shop like that. And those guys are, are great. Uh, but when you sell something like Vicuña, it's sort of like selling high jewelry you know, or diamonds. It's not something you buy spontaneously. Mm. 
there are multiple conversations involved and you look at bigger swatches of the fabric. I mean, you don't sell it by the swatch. You know, if you need to get a bigger piece, you'll get a bigger piece sent to you. Um, and this is a, this was a client who I know very, very well. We have dinner every month with his family and I know them all. And he knows me and my fiance and, but yeah, it's not something that just happens spontaneously. <laughs> it's, it's like a, uh, it, it builds up. It's, it's very, uh, a lot of adrenaline. <laughs> I believe it, especially especially for the guy cutting it, you know. You want to make sure that you're cutting the... Yeah, and we lined it, of course, in like Hermes scarves or something. Oh I mean, why not? You have to. You got to so, go all the way. You got to go all the way. Yeah, you can't just <laughs> you put... can't I go mean, halfway, no. I like a nice Hermesine lining from Bernstein's any day. Yeah, that's my favorite lining is just the, the cheap Bernstein's. I don't even know what that is. Is it a, is it a simple, Cupro? Is it a synthetic maybe i don't know the exact composition uh but it's on their website as ermazine and it's it's really your standard savile row lining it's gotcha. it's not a twill it's a plain weave it's the most inexpensive one but you know i've seen jackets made 50 years ago with that lining and they're still they holding hold up. up it's it's just one of those things now i know bench tailors there there goes that term again who only use like 100 silk from bernstein or um they use the heavy Cupro twill and it, for me, it's, I do that in winter suits and then with summer suits, I'll use the Ermazine that's lightweight. I, I pair the lining to the weight of the garment. Which I um, think that's pretty prudent. There's some guys and also, especially with Cupro as well, there's different, there's different weights and some people will just take it at face value or like, especially yeah. in the U S if you're maybe you need to get something done. And you go to, I don't know, Bias Bespoke or something in New York. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever worked with them. I've they, bought a few things there before. Well, they don't, it's not exactly the same organization that's in Europe. Um, you know, like in Europe, I might go to a small supplier and I'll say, I want the lightweight Cupro uh, Bemberg. And they kind of know that it's a, it's a summer weight and they'll give that to me. Whereas if I go to them, it's not necessarily as clear. You know, it's kind of like, oh, how many grams is that? Oh, well, this this is 200 grams. Oh, well, that's 250. And it's like, oh. And so you have to kind of do a little bit more work and investigation, I, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I it's That's also a great way to kind of tell where a garment was made. If the lining is, you can instantly recognize it was, you know, a Bernstein's lining, yeah. which... Yeah, they buy from whatever every high-end maker of lining there that exists, um, versus something that comes from a factory. I don't know where factories buy those linings, but they all seem to be the same. <laughs> kind of like it's almost like you can pull them apart, and that drives me nuts. Um, I don't even know where you'd find something like that, but yeah, I. I go out of my way to buy linings from England. I mean, we buy all the, we buy three different weights of canvas from England. We buy the, the horsehair. We use the, the yellow, uh, selvage one most of the time. And for some people we buy the a little a heavier weight horsehair, um, chest canvas. And, uh, we buy the different, two different demets, you know, the black and white. And then we buy the heavier gauge one as well for, top coats, tweed, things like that. And then we, you know, one of, one of the things I prefer to do if the garment is going to a very humid climate is to, when the lapels are padded to, you know, have a layer of, um, salation on top, you know, pocketing cloth to make sure that, you know, it's not going to wilt. Give it a little bit more humidity. weight. Exactly. I, I like a, I like a fairly soft garment, but I like a strong lapel. <laughs> well, one piece, one piece of that cotton lining. You'll, yeah, one piece of cotton can do. Yeah, know, it'll do. do I mean, wonders. it's not, it's not gonna, yeah. it's not gonna make anything too structured. But Paolo, I wanted to kind of you mentioned earlier about Alex Bello, and I, so I kind of found out about you through him a little bit, and I just was curious, kind of, as to what your relationship was with Alex. How did it start? Um, if you could kind of explain that for people, because I think, um, you know, I know a little bit about how you guys work together, but I don't yeah. think other people do. Well, what I like about your podcast is that 
there's a link between your guests. <laughs> as I as I realized when I listened to all of them, I'm like that person knows the next guest. Yep. So, um, yeah, Alex, I met a few years ago, five or six years ago, um, summer of twenty fifteen, somewhere around twenty fifteen, I think it was. And um, he knew a few people I know, went to college with them, was in Boston with them. And he interned with this other great guy who uh, he's, I think he's still in the industry. They were just like the dream team of interns. Uh, and Alex, it's, it's funny because he had already done some work at Miller's Elf. And as you know, he kind of grew up in the industry, grew, grew up around quality clothing so he came in like he really did look like a you know european football star you know he had the, <laughs> the hair and everything and i and i said to my boss mark i said uh i think you know we kind of need to clean up our act for this this intern he's like yeah he's like this kid really knows his stuff i think we should like you know you know, cut the swearing down and stuff like that. I think, you know, it was like... Just have one glass of wine at dinner. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was, that didn't last very long. He was, you know, Peter was, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Alex was very, Peter was the other intern we had, like his name came to mind. Uh, Alex was very laid back and we became friends instantly. And we, we started going out for Argentinian food and tapas. We, we went, he took me to some great Spanish markets and, uh, Greenwich Village and Soho and stuff. Uh, it's coming back to me now, some of the things we've done. And um, so, yeah, I, I was aware that, you know, Alex was probably going to be more involved in the technical side and the making side of the industry. Um, but it was good. He got to see more of the operational side because at Paul Stewart, we had like a almost a $4 million custom and made to measure business. So, and that was just me and my boss, the two of us that were doing that was you numbers. and Mark Ricken. Yeah. I mean, the two of us were doing like $4 million a year and Samuelson made to measure suits and Greenfield made to measure suits and custom shirts. I mean, it was, I mean, there's several row businesses that have not gotten to that kind of level of volume yeah. in 200 years. So yeah, the, the interns would always get stuck doing like the faxing and, you know, writing things and <laughs> taking the paperwork. Notes for us. Yeah. And that, that helped us create those kind of numbers, having assistance. Um, yeah. But Alex was definitely someone that you knew was going to be more of a, you know, a, a maker and an artisan and involved in the, in the technical side, as I said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he was, he was working for a few years still in New York. And then when I, I think when I was starting to open my business, I was working on opening my business. I had lunch with him and he made the big announcement. He was moving across the pond and I was like, great. Yeah. Good for you. I'll miss you. I'll miss having you a beer with you and croquettes and, uh, <laughs> and panadas. And maybe I'll see you in London sometime. So I did, <laughs> uh, my fiance and I, we had like our, uh, our, uh, engagement celebration trip in 2019 uh in london and we got together with alex we went to an underground underground bar it was like you know in the third level of the basement so it was <laughs> it was this cool place right off of bond street and uh yeah after a few drinks we we're practically you know doing the old uh dip your finger in your drink and draw a pattern out on the table thing <laughs> and um yeah, so after about three hours of my fiance getting really bored of tailoring talk, um, we came up with some ideas. And then we went to Iceland and Amsterdam to see family and do some other stuff. And we came back to London before leaving. And Alex had the samples. So we were like, okay, let's let's do some work together. So um, that's how it started. So it's it's fun getting to work with someone you kind of grew up with yeah. a little bit. Um that's not an opportunity people have very much. Uh, so, yeah, and he's you know has excelled very fast. And well, and what was that process like when he first started out? Because I know he was pretty early on in his kind of tailoring. Yeah, well, we journey. we stuck to some ideas that he had. Okay, basically, kind of. Did he make stuff for you or for himself to 
Kind yeah, of. we did stuff for each other. Uh, he did stuff for himself that he was actually wearing, and I saw that. And then we did one for me, and then one for a mannequin, and uh, and then we started out on good customers. So it started out with quilted vests, that, which is a great design that he came up with, and we've done very well with. And then uh, he moved into coat making, which, uh, you know, not to speak for him, but you know, at, at his level, probably on Savile Row, he might not be at the coat making level because you have so many other tailors, right? They're not giving out projects to everybody, but we said, you know, try it out. So we had some work that was cut here that he worked on and some stuff that he did some of the work on. It was finished here. So we've done things like that where he's literally helped out with work capacity when we need more help. Um, and then he's done some coat making. So, uh, and then he's, he's done some other projects for me also like some more sportswear related bespoke pieces. So yeah, most of the time Alex is doing the more design driven projects than the standard, you know, guy ordering a couple of gray suits work, which we, you know, we have the people that are good for that kind of cut dry stuff. Alex is good to work with for the more modern tailoring because, you know, he's a young guy. He, a lot of these ideas he's come up with. So yeah, it's great having someone to work with like that. Well, I'm probably someone that you can trust. It sounds like you really trust his kind of intuition on what to do, especially design wise, right? Yeah. He's got taste. And what I like about Alex is that he's always learning. Um, you know, He's doing this thing in Spain that don't ask me to describe it to you because I, I already know you know what it is. But yeah, I was like, okay, <laughs> yeah, sure. dyeing fabric, textile development, dyeing fabrics and natural dyes. Yeah, he just had an, an exhibit that he was doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked the other day. He was catching me up on some of the things. You know, so that that's that's one of the great things about the industry is you have people getting more into things like that. They're, they're learning that it's not just gray flannel and cavalry twill. <laughs> um, so you have to keep up with those kind of things. And you'll get more people who would normally go to fall into the arms of a designer on Fifth Avenue or Madison Avenue. Um, you know, people like the Bitcoin guy that I mentioned. You know, he could easily go to a store and buy Tom Ford or Brioni, whatever it is that appeals to him. Um, but he realized he could go to a tailor who can come up with ideas to present to him and, um, he can give them a vision of what he wants to look like and have someone create that for him. So, um, it's very good to see that there's a lot more of those people out there. And, um, I think our average age across the board is probably late forties for a customer, which we have people that go up to their late nineties and we have people that are younger than me. We have people who are 18. Uh, so we have a lot of people like late thirties to early fifties. And those guys are getting trained to buy like the old school customers come in every season, one season ahead you know, order in August for December and order in uh, January for June, things like that. Yeah. What do you think is, you know, we're talking about Alex, things that are bench made, we spoke about earlier. Like, if you were going to say what is sort of the essence of your, not your product offering, but the essence of your business and why people really come to you, is it, do you think it's product based or do you think it's more of like a relation? Um, relation-based reason. Like they come to you because you're uh, you're someone they can trust, they can consult with you, they can relate to you. I mean, how do you see that? So when dealing with your average bespoke customer, if there is such a thing, (laughs) such a particular industry, quality and craftsmanship are kind of a given. People expect that at this price point and this exclusivity, it's handmade. They're going to have the fittings. It's going to be what they're envisioning. What they're buying is also the relationship. And it is 
Yeah, very humbling experience when new customers and I, a lot of my customers I inherited from when I left Paul Stewart and they followed me. Um, but it, it's really humbling when a guy calls me up. I want to come in. They meet me. And it's like, so, yeah, out of curiosity, there's a few other people in this building. Why did you happen to choose me? Well, I, I you know, I like the fact that you're a millennial or I like the fact that you're young or I like the fact that, you know, you're from here and it's not an intimidating experience of dealing with someone from another place that's from a different culture. And, you know, it's, it's just a lot more laid back. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and if you talk to enough customers, even if they're not my customers, I think they'll tell you that when it comes to bespoke tailoring, a lot of it is relationship driven, sometimes more than the product. Um, I've met a lot of people over the years who have worn, let's just say, bad bespoke tailoring made by very good tailors, very well-esteemed people. And it's, and I don't comment on, I never will tell a customer, you know, I mean, people ask, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? I had a guy who had a closet that had million dollars of clothes in it. And he's like, what do you think of how this all fits? I'm like, I can't tell you that. Um, but what the customer will say is, oh, I have a great relationship with my cutter so-and-so. And it's like, okay, you know, that that's great. Personally, I wish they maybe did a better job because the guy deserves it. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 you are having a very intimate experience with this customer. They are, you know, literally they're in their underwear. Um, they are trusting you with their look and the people who buy bespoke clothing. I mean, there are all types of people you work with. <laughs> there are people who've saved up their entire life. There are people who took out a loan there. And then there are people who, you know, this is pocket change for them to be buying. They've been doing this since they were, you know, 20 or Since they were a kid, yeah. you know, some of these people. They're, they're just used to it. They're, they're not concerned about price or anything. They, they, they just grew up buying tailored clothing. Yeah, it's just a, uh, you know, totally about the fact that they're trusting you with their look. And, you know, many of the people I deal with are CEOs and entrepreneurs and company partners and directors and, they are people on TV and they have to know that the person who's dressing them has got their credibility in mind. You know, they don't want to show up looking too ostentatious or, you know, too flashy. Uh, they have an image that they want to project. You know, there, you have some bankers who still want to project the image of Gordon Gecko, and you have other people who, you know, I've had people with billions of dollars tell me, I don't want people to be able to smell <laughs> the money, so to speak. You know, I, I want to, I've had people tell me, I want to, I want my $6,000 suit to look like a thousand dollar suit. I was going to say, it's almost like, yeah, you want the opposite effect. Yeah. I mean, we've had, I've seen every request. I mean, I've seen people say, could, could you not you know, put any hand stitching on the outside of the garment? I don't want people to see the stitching sorry no that's that yes you could make a handmade suit and not do any of the hand finishing on the outside because a lot of it is for show but uh it's like no because what is there for me i have to deliver something i mean yes their labels might be very subtle and they might be hidden and we don't brand our clothes like a lot of other Americans. We brand a little bit more like the English do with the hidden labels and everything. But, you know, there, there has to be something in it for me as the, as the, as the brand to, and the, you know, person directing the style here to sell this garment to you and make this garment for you. Those, those requests are very seldom. Well, it sounds like then kind of like the, the main selling point is that you're able to, given that you're producing, you know, an extremely high quality product you're able to really understand what the person wants your client wants how they want to be understood from other people what effects they want to have when they're in the room and then give them that desired effect right it's yeah how i present to the customer and everything i mean i, I take a lot into consideration and 
I'm surprised how many times I hear from customers. Yeah, I went to so and so to have clothes made, and I live in Florida, and they were trying to sell me a flannel suit because they said it tailors very well, and they didn't understand where I live. They never heard of it before, and you know, I think there is something to be said about an American selling American clothes. I mean, it's just if I went to Europe and I tried to sell people clothes. I don't think I'd be as good at it as I would be going to Dallas or Los Angeles. I, I just think that that's a limitation that people will always encounter in, in a business like ours where we're doing all the traveling. It's not like uh, a brand like Dunhill that has their tailor for China, their tailor for Japan, their tailor for the United States. That's it's a whole other, you know, that's a designer brand kind of world. In our industry, we're doing the selling. Um, many of us are doing the labor, the operating of the business. You know, we're, we're small little businesses, so it's a. I think that's a limitation a lot of us will have is there are going to be certain markets where we're just not going to do as well. Now, obviously, Savile Row does very well in the United States, and many Italian tailors do very well. Um, I had a, a very successful tailor from Europe. I don't even want to say what region they're from. And they contacted me through a, a vendor who is not does not sell something related to bespoke products. They sell an accessory that a lot of tailors buy. And he's like, could you talk to this tailor? And I'm sure, I know who that is. You know, but why do they want to talk to me? And they and they told me that they were finding that when they came to the United States, they had a lot of limitations. I said, well, to be honest with you, I said, have you ever looked at your lapels? I said, you sell these very, I said, they're beautiful. Your clothes are beautiful. And, and this person is a very talented tailor, them and their whole family. And they were just like, yeah, when we go to the U.S., we just don't kind of, we just don't do as much business as our competitors do. And I said, well, I said, if you're going to come to the United States, I said, you got to give the person what they want. And I've heard Savile Row tailors talk about it. I've heard people like Brian Lishak talk about it from Richard Anderson. When he was with Huntsman, he'd go over to the U.S. and it's like they would soften up what they were selling. You know, kind of unbutton their jackets and you know, look a little bit more cozy in their clothes. Their tie. <laughs> yeah, because the Americans were wearing sack suits. And that's why a lot of Americans fell into the hands of those who do soft tailoring in, in Europe and the UK because it's it's so comfortable. So I was telling this tailor, I said, you know, you, you might want to not do that kind of frog mouth notch lapel or that kind of straight line uh, peak lapel. You want to maybe, you know, you know, look at Salvaro, look at Ralph Lauren, you know, do some of those details to your clothes. Yeah, they then your style, which is very particular and unique. Uh, personally, I don't think this person needed to worry. I think this is like, they're very talented. They, they do very well. I, I hope they realize that by now. Um, but yeah, that's that's one example of something someone's going to admit to you the limitation they have when they go to a different market to sell their clothes. Thank you for listening to Common Threads, produced by Artifacts. Make sure to visit our website at discoverartifacts.com and subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or even better, if you'd simply share the show with a friend. Until next time.